0: Alright everyone, so we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 17 today. If you take a kind of a big picture look at this particular chapter, uh, the first um, section um, talks about um, uh, or kind of contrasts um, uh, the, the Ten Commandments versus the commandments that the people are actually following at the moment. Uh, the second section is kind of some, some poetic speech there that um, we'll look at if you want to turn to Psalm chapter 1. We'll be flipping over there to look at that section uh, to compare. Uh, Begin with four, verse 14, we've got a prayer that Jeremiah uh, prays on his own behalf, uh, kind of lamenting his current situation. And then we're going to close with a reminder uh, to the people about keeping the Sabbath. So that's our scope of work for today. So we'll uh, jump on in. Uh, chapter 17, verse 1, it says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their ashram, thus I said every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country... Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Things have gone bad for the people of uh, uh, Israel proper, and in this case, the, the southern kingdom Judah. And picking up on some themes that we've already touched on several times in Jeremiah. Uh, We have this reference to um, altars and ashram. The ashram was uh, our Asherah poles. You'll sometimes see probably some sort of a phallic symbol statue, uh, as gross as that is, um, in their place of worship. And we talked about these high places, which were kind of groves of trees up the hill where, Uh, People would go, interact with um, the temple prostitutes um, uh, and so forth. Uh, All manner of badness there. But uh, a couple things. It says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. So this would immediately call to mind God's law engraved on tablets of stone. Um, the, same, the word engraved there is the exact same word that they used when God wrote out the Ten Commandments in stone. Uh, so stone was obviously the hardest thing that you could uh, find back in the day to inscribe. And this is saying what you've done has just been indelibly, permanently scratched into the stone. Um, in other words, this sin is not going away. This is documented, and it's as well documented what your sin is as the Ten Commandments that God has given you. So, this big contrast between, you know, God gave you this law, you swore you would abide by it, but now you've, in essence, sworn yourself to this law that you've graved, in, in essence, written your own tombstone on, engraved your own sin upon it. But then one of the most troubling passages in this little section is verse 2. While their children remember. Traditions are important, right? Uh, It's one of the ways that we kind of carry our or translate might be a better word, or perpetuate the things that we hold dear to the generations that follow us, right? Uh, Our children remember the things that they did when they were children. And they're more likely to transmit those to their children, right? Uh, I don't think it's any accident that if you have grown up in a Christian family Statistically, you are more inclined to carry that forward than someone who did. Right? How badly things have gone is the memories, the traditions that the children are remembering are when mom and dad used to cavort about in the high places with their phallic symbol Asherah poles worshiping at the altar of Baal, this on the horns of their altars making reference to the horns of the Ark of the Covenant where the priest would sprinkle the blood for forgiveness of sin, that's how badly things have gone. It's already down to the next generation and that's what those kids are remembering and without some intervention, that's what they would carry forward to their children. Devastating. And it's so weird, the Jews, even though they had forsaken the law that God gave them and written their own sinful law, in essence, that they were bowing down to, in some warped way, they were still hanging on to their designation and God's chosen people to somehow save them. And God says, not so fast. Verse 4, it says... Loosen your hand from the heritage that I gave you. In other words, it's not really yours to hold anymore. That's not going to save you. Things have gone from bad to worse. And in a prediction that we know came true, I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Turn to Psalm 1. A well-known psalm. Uh, It's a a favorite of a lot of folks, including myself. We're going to have in Jeremiah, you might say a little sermonette based on Psalm 1. There's some debate about that. Some people think Psalm 1 may have been uh uh, a cleanup of what jeremiah said but in any event here we have it psalm 1 verse 1 blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the lord and on his law he meditates day and night no accident there that these phrases and this reference to psalm 1 is coming right after he's just talked about their perversion with the law that they were given. I don't think that's accidental. Verse 3, he is like a tree. This That is this man who walks uh, not in with the wicked, not with the sinners, not with the scoffers, but delights in the law. That guy, verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does, he prospers. We've talked many times about the very arid desert climate in you know, Israel and how precious water was. And we're going to see reference to living water uh, again in a, in a bit. But this tree planted by streams of water, what a fortunate tree that is. Statistically, if you were a tree, you were very unlikely to be planted by an oasis. You had it good as a tree if you were planted by streams of water, yielding fruit. Your leaf didn't wither. Things are prospering. You're bearing fruit. That's that guy, like that tree. So turn back, and we're going to see kind of the the mirror image or the negative x-ray, so to speak, of that. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought, nor does it cease to bear fruit. Verse 6. He is like a shrub in the desert; he shall not see any good come. This man who trusts in his own strength makes his flesh his strength. Of all the things that we'll probably talk about today, I think this phrasing characterizes our times as well as any because we definitely trust in our own strength. We expect knowledge to save us. We expect the government to save us. We expect uh technology to save us. Um, We look towards so many people but it says the man who trusts the man who trusts in man. Right? That's what we do. The man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And what does it do to the man who's trusting some other man to be the strong guy? Then immediately he's the weakling. Right? Right? And he has to get some other man to help him out. Um, you know, it's... If you've ever seen a weak man, it's, um, it's, it's sad. Um, one time, I had to drive about 15 miles to help a grown man change his tire. Didn't know if he had a jack. He didn't know if he had a spare. He didn't know where his spare was. This wasn't a truck that he had just purchased. It was. It was sad. You know, a blind spot. You know, he's a good guy in a lot of other ways, but, but that was, that was that was like a, 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 a teachable moment there. Um, I had Max with me, and uh, he said, "Where we're we going?" I said, "Come follow me, and we'll see." It was, uh, and of course you can picture what we did that next Saturday when he was like 12 or 13. He was changing tires. We we really we really, and I know we all know this, right? We really can't expect anyone else to fix our problems other than God. We know that, right? I know we all forget it sometimes, and you know, the worry level starts to go up. I'm just as guilty as anybody, but when we realize that no matter what happens economically, politically, geographically, um, ultimately our trust is not there, right? It's in the Lord. One of the more devastating verses um, is verse 9. And probably the most well-known verse in this chapter, and perhaps arguably one of the better-known verses in all of Jeremiah, 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds... Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she didn't hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at the end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So he's talked about dry places, barren places Um, and now compared with the book end of this is this the Lord the fountain of the living water and he's saying anyone in verse 13 anyone who forsakes you as their trust is going to be put to shame Um, shame is definitely associated with putting your trust in the wrong place but as we go back up and look again at this verse 9 it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick Um, one of the knocks of the modern generation and why it's sometimes hard for people to come to faith is the fact that people think they're doing pretty good. That they don't need saving. What do I need saving from? What do I need a savior from? Here we have God saying, of course, it's not only... Deceitful above all things, all things—that's a lot, right? And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. So this was interesting to me. Typically, when we say I'm speaking from the heart, um, uh, in modern terms, we think of the heart being the seat of our emotions, right? Our, our, you know, our longings, you know, our, you know we're heartbroken about things, um, that sort of language. And then we think about the mind being the logical part, okay? I learned, and, and the commentators agree on this, that's opposite of how the, the language was of the Hebrews, Here's the way it actually reads. The Lord searches the heart and tests the kidneys. The heart was considered the place of the intellect, of the thinking through things, of the planning, right? That's why the, you could talk about the heart being deceitful. It's, it's, you know, we could almost substitute the mind. So, but back in the day, the heart was this sentient part. It was the part that was purposefully deciding this or that. The kidneys, you might think more, they were referring to what we would say, I had a gut feeling, right? that And that's where this more of a, an emotional thing, and we, we can identify with that too, right? Ever been so upset with something that you, you know, you just kind of feel it in your gut? Um, people with IBS, don't raise your hands, but they, <laughs> that connection is like a freeway, uh, straight from the brain to the gut. Um, eight-year-olds who have to play for piano recitals. Uh, I can identify with that. those butterflies in the stomach, right? Um, so I wrote in, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. I wrote to the side of that, kidneys, because I thought that was... That was good. And then this is uh, sobering. Uh, I'm glad we live under the age of grace. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Uh, I, I don't want any part of that, right? I don't want any part of getting the fruit of my deeds. A couple of quotes about this passage. One commentator says, Regarding the heart is deceitful above all things, He says, this is one of the most powerful statements of human depravity in all of Scripture. The doctrine of total depravity means that every human being is sinful through and through. No part of the human person remains untouched by sin. The mind, the will, the emotions, and the conscience are all corrupt. So is the heart, which is the innermost core of the human person. It, too, is depraved. And that fits right where we've been in Pastor Bobby's work on Romans, right? Those first two chapters were first to the Gentiles and then to the Jews saying, all of you are bad. And all of the kind of bad things that you didn't think were as bad as the really bad things, they're all equally bad. Remember that he would kept saying, this was on a Wednesday night, deserving of death, deserving of death, deserving of death, deserving of death. Deserving of death. You couldn't, there was no wiggle room there, right? And so here is the Old Testament version of that. The heart is deceitful above all things and seriously, I'm sorry, desperately, it's even worse, desperately sick. This 11 and 12, um, uh, this concept of the a bird somehow hatching chicks that weren't their own there should be no surprise that those birds are going to fly away and not stay close to home um, the person who gets rich quick in unfair means probably not going to hang on to that money for long one other thing i, I meant to to mention about this uh, deceitful heart thing you're familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the screw tape letters? You remember, you remember those? Um, if, if it doesn't ring a bell, this is where C.S. Lewis writes um, from the point of view of a, a demon, uh, a lieutenant, uh, or some rank, writing to a lower rank demon, right? Uh, advising him of all the, the proper ways to demonize uh, people. And... Um, it was kind of a, a little behind the veil, uh, kind of C.S. Lewis, kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit on, on uh, how evil happens and how we're influenced and so forth. And it says in in it says in the introduction of the second edition, Lewis wrote this. He said, "Some have paid me an undeserved compliment." by supposing that my letters were the ripe fruit of many years of study in moral and ascetic theology. They forgot that there is an equally reliable, though less creditable, way of learning how temptation works. My heart. I'd need no others. So he didn't need to study a lot of theology. He just needed to look at his own heart to know how temptation works. And I think if we're honest... And I think even if our pagan friends are honest, they would admit everybody's got a pretty dark heart if the light of Jesus hasn't shown up there. Verse 14, this is Jeremiah's prayer for, um, my, my Bible says his prayer, for, he prays for deliverance. I don't know what a little subheading yours might say. But it's, it's a personal um, it's a personal prayer and you can kind of see how many times the word me or my shows up in it. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. In other words, these people that he's been prophesying for, nothing's happened yet, so now they're kind of taunting him as if he might be a false prophet because the things that he's prophesied about haven't come true yet. He says, look, I've been faithful. He said, verse 16, I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. Um, he's just kind of had it, right? This is just from his kidneys. Uh, this is him pouring out, uh, we would say, his heart to the Lord. Um, uh, he's feeling it this day. And, um, but again, who, do, who does he turn to? He turns to God, right? And we've talked before that God is perfectly uh, capable of hearing um, our petitions. And doing something about them. All right, verse 19. Uh, We'll just go through. Thus says the Lord to me Go and stand in the people's gate by which the kings of Judah enter, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord. Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I have commanded your fathers. If they did not listen, or incline their ear, but stiffen their neck, that they may not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy, and do no work on it, Then there shall enter by the gates of the city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, and they and their officials and the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall be inhabited forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin, from the land of Shephelah, all over the hill country and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices and grain offerings and frankincense and bringing dank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen to me, to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and to enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. So this is a basically a sermon nailing down the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy. right? So what do we think about this concept of the Sabbath? as as Christians. Um, it's been it's been said, and, and I think truthfully so that that all of the commandments of the Ten Commandments are reiterated, rephrased, um, recommunicated, and so forth in the New Testament, except the one about keeping the Sabbath. So many uh, Christians would say this command of keeping the Sabbath doesn't apply to me, right? We've heard this, and I've probably said something similar. Dad probably has. There are some Christians who disagree, right? Uh, I saw a patient a few months ago, and um, he was trying to get his life together uh, and had made progress. He came in. He was more neatly dressed than usual he had his bible with him it, he had been uh, meeting regularly with a pastor and it sounded like he had been getting some pretty good advice but this particular pastor's leanings was that you should really be um worshiping on sunday i mean uh, on saturday uh you know it wasn't really the context for me to try to debate that at the time although i i was interested to, but um, but it, it, it is interesting. What about this whole Sabbath thing? Now there is, are some people who would say, well in fact one commentator took a totally different angle on this than I expected said that the, the point of keeping the Sabbath was not to work that was That was what keeping the Sabbath meant then. You didn't work. I thought it was very interesting, and I couldn't dispute the point that he said, never in the Old Testament were they ever told to worship on the Sabbath. It was not a worship day. And we have kind of borrowed the concept of the Sabbath put a New Testament coat of paint on it, right? And said, well, Sunday is kind of like our Sabbath and that's when we should wor- worship. But if we're really borrowing that, then it would basically just be, okay, we just don't work on something. Now, a generation ago, that's also what it meant, Right? Stores weren't open. Um, and then there was that zone for a few decades where stores were open, but not for everything, right? The blue balls, right? Um, and now we're, you know, that's totally in the rear view mirror. Uh, but it is interesting, right? Now there are some people who, and I think they have a decent, a point, uh, a decent a point where they say, um, when Jesus said, um, this is Matthew 11, I think 28. You guys know the verse I'm fishing for here. Let's see. Sword drill. I'm losing. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some people say that the Sabbath rest is fulfilled in Jesus' that if you're in Jesus, in essence, you are Sabbathing in him, that that is your rest. Others would say our ultimate rest hasn't happened yet, but that'll be in glory. But theologically, they say, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And some people say, you know, the Sabbath was, you know, when when Jesus said, "I, I... didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. They say this particular commandment was fulfilled in him. I think it's an, it's an interesting point. Um, we've talked before about how we kind of landed on Sunday as a day when we did do togetherness, right? Um, Hebrew says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. So we are supposed to assemble together. Um, And Bonus points We talk about the Lord's day right Um, And we talk about the first day of the week Being the Lord's day Do you know where that shows up in scripture Mm -hmm. Revelation Give the gold ribbon Um, Revelation 1 verse 10 I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it up to the seven churches. So uh, we've talked about that uh, there was uh, in Paul's writings, there's the instructions about uh, gathering up your tithes and offerings on the first day of the week. Right. Um, and so uh, so you don't really have to worship, but you at least have to take up the offering. I think that's the, <laughs> that's kind of uh, where we are. Um, not really. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? And I think this is one of those things that's maybe that we all have to answer for ourselves. You know, what does it mean to, to keep the Sabbath? Does that mean anything for the Christian? Is there something that we should take away from that? Is Even if it's not a command, is it still wise to have at least some time when you can rest? And some of the people that argue for a day of rest go back and say, you know, this wasn't a covenant thing, this wasn't a commandment thing, that it was a creation thing. And that because God rested, you know, it goes all the way back to creation. And in fact, when when God gave the Israelites the command, he referenced that. Uh, so some people would argue, with I think a, de- a decent argument, that uh, that there should be a day of rest because it goes all the way back to creation when things were good before sin, um, and that that that's you know a good reason. So I think it's one of those things that we all have to kind of find where we are on it. Um, uh, there's always exceptions, right? You know, even the Puritans said you know sometimes there's necessary work that you need to do, uh, even though they were by our standards maybe more legalistic about things um, so it's, it's interesting uh, any any thoughts on what keeping the Sabbath means today we know the, um, the chariots of fire story right I said I'm not going to run on the Sabbath you know uh, I came across a couple commentators who had similar stories um, of others who had said you know I'm just not going to um, run on Sabbath and and they they meant Sunday. Um, so it's I think it's interesting how you're gonna do that.
1: We always brought up for instance we didn't go swimming
0: Okay. Sunday. So no swimming on Sunday? No. All right. And I mean we kind of evolved out of that. What about fishing on Sunday? No No fishing on Sunday.
1: <laughs> yeah. Chapter two, yes, uh, verse twenty-seven. He's he's in discourse with some folks on uh, on about the Sabbath, and he they asked him about, or he reminded them when David went into the to the uh, the temple and ate the priest Shuvah. Right, and he said, Jesus said in twenty-seven, he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and therefore the son son of man is the Lord also of the Sabbath. So there's and we talk about Christians as some things that are that are okay for me to do because I'm not convicted, right, of that. And but it may be something that you are horribly convicted on, right. And there's I think that's a a thing that uh, as a Christian there's a lot of freedom in that. Mm-hmm. that I don't have to abide by your um, all of your uh, things that you have to exactly. And exactly. not that not that you're wrong or I'm wrong, but that for us we have to be mindful
0: of what god is telling us absolutely um and some people had actually used that verse um to argue that because the sabbath was made for man that god was just saying hey y'all you need a break (laughs) you know and this is kind of a forced break you know so um yeah i think it's i think i think that's a great point um and uh so stay tuned, do not miss whatever messages Pastor Bobby does on Romans 14, which is all about convictions, right? Um, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind, right? And, and it actually, one of the examples they go through is, which day are you going to pick special? You know, you may feel convicted that Thursday is just going to be the Lord's day for you, and there would be nothing in Scripture to argue against that. Um, now, maybe not this Thursday, but... <laughs> Um, if you have, get enough people to agree with you, you can kind of start your own branch. Um, but, yeah, you know, um, I've heard Dad say, you know, he's always a little jealous. Uh, last night we went to a wedding, and I drove by. It was around 7 o'clock past this beautiful low-country Catholic church and pretty full parking lot. And I've heard Dad say, you know, wouldn't mind knocking it out Saturday night and sleeping in on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, God bless them, you know. You can't, uh, can't really argue scripture. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are Lord of all the days and uh, that you have um, provided a way that we can have our deceitful, seriously, desperately wicked hearts dealt with. We thank you for Jesus, through whom we receive that grace. In his name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.